So we're going to be right there in Genesis 12. Hope you will take time to join me there. Genesis chapter 12. It's good to see everybody here this morning. I do appreciate your presence and glad to be a part of this good assembly and be able to worship God with the folks here at this place, at this church. There are people in this room, my guess is, that feel, I mean, even now, even now you feel this way. You wonder if God's going to be able to make anything out of, out of this life you're living. You, you know your weaknesses, you know your mistakes, your sins, your struggles. You know how often you succumb to temptation and you wonder, you know, God's probably just done with me, you know. He's going to. He's going to move on to somebody who's, who's got his or her act together a little bit better than I do, you know. Some of you, I, I'm guessing, I mean, I've, I've been around long enough to know this. I've been a human being long enough to know this. We struggle with this, right? Some churches feel like this. I mean, kind of corporately, we, we feel like, Lord, what in the world are you going to do with our little group of believers? I mean, seven plus billion people on the planet right now chaos, things, seems like things are going south, people are getting more immoral, more violence in the world, there's more apathy, whatever, you know. We got a group of 300 plus believers meeting at this place today, but man, what in, what in the world kind of difference are we going to make, you know. What can God do with us? I mean, we got our own problems, right? Every church does. We've got our weaknesses and shortcomings because the church is made up of people, and people have problems. And so collectively, corporately, the church is going to have somewhat the sum total of our individual issues, right? So, I mean, churches can get this kind of feeling as well. I wonder what in the world God's going to do with our little church family at this place to make a difference in this planet of seven point whatever billion people, most of whom don't claim the name of Jesus in any meaningful sense, you know? What in the world? What does God do when we turn south? What, what does God do when we go in the opposite direction from what he wants? When God wants us to go north and we go south. When God wants us to live this way and we live another way. When we recognize these many ways in which we disappoint him. What does God do in those moments? I think as we wrestle with some of those questions for the next few minutes, the answers have something to do with why we have this story preserved for us in Genesis 12. Because people have always struggled with this, because God has always worked with people with weaknesses and shortcomings, people who, who turn south when they ought to go north. And so when we look at the life of Abraham here, I mean, this is right on the hills. I know not everybody was here last week. <clears throat> so let me say this. This is right after God has said, Abraham, leave your family, leave your homeland, your country, your, everything you're familiar with, leave that land and go to a place that I will show you. And I'm going to use you, Abraham, to be a blessing to the world. I am going to make your name great. I'm going to give you this awesome land. I'm going to make a nation out of you that's going to make a difference in the world and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I mean, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I guess all the way down through verse 9, really, 
it's, it's, it's such an important part of the Bible because everything after Genesis 12 points back in some way to those three verses. And then Abraham goes south. Right after God has called him and made these sweeping promises, I am going to do some incredible things through you, Abraham. And, in, and Abraham is a man of faith. I mean, we know that from other things that we read about Abraham. We know that he's a good man. We know that he, he wants to walk with the Lord. We, we know this about him. And we'll look at some of those stories later on in this short series that we're studying for the next few weeks. But, but today we, we, we turn to, to another kind of story, a story in which Abraham goes south. He goes south, geographically speaking, because he's going down to Egypt. And so... I think he's going south in other ways, too, as we use that expression sometimes. But what you've got here is this interesting story about Abraham. There's this famine in the land, this land that God has promised. He's got, uh, Abraham has gone from the north to the south. And so he's through that, what we call the land of Canaan, the land where you know, Israel is now, Israel and Syria and Jordan and that part of the world. So, so he goes from the north and he goes all the way to the Negev, to the southern part of this land that God God's promised them. And there's this famine. There's this famine. How are we going to stay alive? God, you've made all these promises to us. You've, you've, made, you've promised that you're going to make a great nation out of me and my family, and, and that's not going to happen if I don't stay alive. And in order to stay alive, I've got to eat. And in order to eat, I've got to leave this land. And so he goes south. There's a famine in the land, and he went down to Egypt to sojourn there. He's going south to Egypt. There's the famine is severe in the land. He gets down there, and I mean, we read the story. I'm not going to read it again to you. But the gist of it is, he gets down there, and he thinks, well, you know what? I've got a pretty wife. I know how things work in the world. And in the world that Abraham lived in, it was no big thing for a king of the land to take your pretty wife into his harem. And Abraham knows how the world works, and so here's how I'm going to circumvent that. I'm going to say she's my sister, and you know, he, she, she was back in that time. She was his half sister. You know, so you got, so you got this, you got this, um, this thing going on where he, where he lies about Sarah. He lies about his wife in order to protect her. I think probably more so to protect him because if they're going to take his wife to be in the harem, they're probably going to get rid of the husband. And so Abraham's protecting himself by, in a way, protecting his wife. And so he tells a lie. Immediately, God sends plagues on the king's house, right? Did you, did you pick up on that? These are not incidental details. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, verse 15, they, they took her and they blessed Abraham and we got all this stuff, female donkeys and camels. That's biblical language for, this is a, worth a lot of money. When you talk about female donkeys and camels and servants, male servants and female servants and so on, this is ancient currency that says this is a lot of money this is worth a lot but verse 17 the lord afflicted pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of pharaoh now look at look at this with me all right you guys with me back up in verse 3 god had said this he said and in you all the families of the earth y'all with me will be what will be blessed and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed Abraham's first move was to go down to Egypt. And did Abraham bring a blessing? Or a cursing? 
Abraham went down to Egypt and instead of bringing a blessing to all the families of the earth, he brought plagues. And you see, see, he's doing exactly the opposite of what God had wanted him to do. First of all, he leaves the land because of the famine. Next, he lies about Sarah, his wife. He's, he says, I got to take care of myself, man. I can't trust God to do it. I got to take care of myself. There's a famine in the land. How's God going to provide me food in the middle of a famine? He didn't know God very well, does he? How God, how's God going to protect my wife down here in the land of Egypt when people want to take her from me? i got to lie about her. So you see, he's, he's very much taking things into his own hands here. And so he goes down to Egypt, and as a result of him, all families of the earth, right now at least, are not being blessed. They're being plagued because plagues come on Pharaoh's house as a result of Abraham's lie, and they're taking Sarah into the harem and all that. So God afflicts them with plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. This is the first observation here. You're going to be a blessing. That's what God said, Abraham. You're going to be a blessing, or maybe not. Left to his own devices, Abraham's not going to be a blessing to anybody, pretty much. He's going to seek his own way of providing food. He's going to lie about his wife. He's going to look for the protection that human beings offer him and not God. And so instead of being a blessing to all the families of the earth, Abraham, at this point at least, has gone south. He's gone south to Egypt. He's gone south in his thinking, and he has become a plague to the people around him. And so the very opposite of what God has promised him in the first part of the chapter is happening in Abraham's life because of Abraham's departure to the south. You see this? You're going to be a blessing, Abraham, unless you're not. Now, I think ultimately, we know what happens with this story, which is where I want to go with this. But I want you to notice initially, through our own efforts, this is so often what happens when we do things our own way, when we think, hey, it's all up to me, I gotta do it all right, I gotta get I gotta do this, it's all my own effort, we so often end up being kind of trying to be self-sufficient, but we can't be. So we end up bringing not blessings, but plagues on the people around us when we do things our own way. So you're you're gonna be a you're gonna be a blessing, Abraham. Well, maybe not, at least not through your own efforts. Which brings up this observation. I appreciate the men who've led us in worship in this good way to kind of focus our attention on some of this stuff already. But God, God, God overrides. Aren't you glad God can override? <laughs> do you want God just endorsing everything you do and just going with it? I don't. I don't think most of us do. Aren't you glad God can override our faithlessness and the actions we take consistent with that faithlessness? I'm not saying we live faithless lives all the time. I'm just saying we have those moments where we go to Egypt, we, we go south in our thinking. We've got to take care of, we've got to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We've got to do all this stuff ourselves. We've got to get ourselves rescued from the famine. We've got to protect our own wives, our own families through our own efforts, right, apart from what God is doing. And we act like we don't really have a God who takes care of things. Aren't you glad God can override our acts of faithlessness, faithlessness to accomplish his own purposes? That's what God does. That's what he's always been doing, and that's what he's going to continue doing. Let me give you an example of this. Now, let me ask you to do something. I, wanna, I want you, for a minute, well, I, I want... Some of what I'm about to say is going to require you to pay close attention because I want you to see some ties here that aren't immediately obvious. 
Okay, but I think they're there. I know they're there. And I think God wants us to find them. There's so many things from God's Word. We don't get it in a superficial reading. We don't get just the first reading or the second reading. We don't get it until the 100th reading or the 200th reading or, or years of reflection or, or whatever. And so there's some things here in the text that I believe God put there so that we would get this after we've been wrestling with it and studying it for a while. I'm calling this Echoes of Eden because I believe that there are ties in the way that this story is told where God is embedding a message in the text to help us, from our Christian perspective, see some things that he's been doing for years and years and years so that we might draw confidence in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he is also the God of us and the God who works in our lives just as he worked in their lives, that God is still walking with us. He's still taking us places. And there are things that are embedded in texts like this one that will help us to see that. So I'm calling this Echoes of Eden because there are, there are some things here that if you, will, if you will open your eyes to see this, I think you'll, you'll be amazed by some of the things that God does in his word that are so wonderful and incredible and beautiful. So in this text, notice, I want to just mention several echoes of Eden. What I mean by Eden is I mean what God did in creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and then what God did in response to what Adam and Eve did in the story that we have there in Genesis 3 of the fall where Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and brought devastating consequences on the earth and on their bodies and on relationships and on everything that we know. But then what God is doing now notice some of the parallels between our story in Genesis 12 and what happened in Genesis 3. In both stories, you've got the, the presence of food as being some part of the story. You've got the famine in Genesis 12. You've got the, the fruit, the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. You've got deception involved. You've got the serpent lying to Eve and consequently Adam in Genesis 3. You've got Abraham's lying in Genesis 12. You've got the wife being portrayed in a, in a crucial role in Genesis 3. She, of course, listens to the serpent initially and gives in. In Genesis 12, you've got the wife involved in a critical role as well. As a result of the discovery of the deception, think about this. In Genesis 12, you've got, you've got God in, interrogating. Remember in Genesis 3? when the deception was discovered about what Adam and Eve had done and serpent, the serpent had told them, you got God coming to them and saying, Adam, what have you done? Going to, goes to Eve and says, Eve, what have you done? He goes to the serpent and God interrogates or, or challenges the serpent. You know, you got, you got those things. In Genesis 12, you've got something similar. By the way, I, 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 I think sometimes when we talk about stuff like this, some of you might be thinking, that's a stretch. I don't think it's there. I wish I could sit down with you and show you some of the verbal parallels that don't come through, especially when you, don't, when you just read it maybe once or twice. But there are so many verbal parallels between Genesis 12, what we're reading here, the way the language is in, when God is talking about the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the language is the same. Not just the English, but the Hebrew language in which this was originally written. It's the same. He's using the same words, and he's using them in similar ways. Let me give you an example of this. In Genesis 12, a couple of examples. Genesis 12, verse 18, God says, 
or Pharaoh calls Abram and he says, what is this you've done to me? And in Genesis 3, 13, in almost identical words, God says, what is this you have done? The verbal parallels are, are pretty interesting. In Genesis 12, 18, Pharaoh says, why did you not tell me? In Genesis 3, 11, the text says, who told you? In Genesis 12, 11, it says several times, I know, or God knows. In Genesis 3, it talks about God knowing, verse 5. It uses the words good and well in similar ways in Genesis 12 and Genesis 3. I mean, these go on and on and on. The princes of Pharaoh saw her, and the woman was taken. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and she took it. The language is remarkably similar. In fact, it's so similar that... If you're reading this, if you're reading Genesis 12 beside Genesis 3, especially if you're reading it in, in the original language, it's almost like whoever wrote Genesis 12, to an extent you're going to have to trust me on this, though I'd encourage you to go back and look at it. Whoever wrote Genesis 12 is intending for his language to be echoing what he had just written about Nine chapters before. The language is that close. Now, you might say, okay, I'll grant you that. So what? What does it mean? I think what it means is that we've got to read the Bible as a whole. We've got, we got to read it as a whole story. and We don't just read Genesis 12, but we read it against the backdrop of the entire narrative of Scripture, what God is doing, this big story that, that God is telling. And what is that big story that God is telling? The big story of God is that what happened in the fall and, and the consequences of that that permeate humanity since the beginning, since Genesis 3, we've had all sorts of problems. We still have problems, right? Because we're sinful people. But the big story of the Bible is God is fixing what happened in Genesis 3. And so you're going to see these echoes sprinkled throughout Scripture. Now, one more thing about that before we move on to another idea. What happened... I know we're in worship. You guys don't feel comfortable talking much. But I hope you'll answer this in your mind at least. In Genesis 3, what happened as a result of Adam and Eve's fall? What did God do to them with respect to the garden? Kicked them out, right? They were removed from the garden. They were removed from the paradise, from the blessings of the garden. They were removed from that. But in Genesis 12... In, in some ways, the story is framed in a similar way. What happens to Abraham when he leaves Egypt? Abraham has deceived. He has gone down to Egypt. He's brought plagues on the people he was supposed to bless. And as a result of that, what happens with Abraham? He leaves Egypt. Look at the text. He leaves Egypt. Verse, verse 16, he's got all these, all these blessings and in verse 20, and if you go on into chapter 13, you'll see that Abraham leaves Egypt with all these riches that he didn't have when he went down there. What happened in Genesis 3 as a result of the deception is people were punished. In Genesis 12, Abraham deceives about his wife Sarah, goes down to Egypt, and he leaves a blessed man. He's got his family, and not only his family, but he's got 
an accumulation of blessings. And what I think you see here, if you stay with me here, what I think you see here is this is a subtle way for God to say, I am undoing what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And I am bringing about blessings in spite of the fact that you are so often faithless. I am bringing about blessings. And that's the story of the Bible. You and I don't do it like we should. But we see that God looks down on us in our rebellion and our faithless. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One more thing. One more thing, and this is, this is similar to what we've, we've talked about. I don't have time to go into a, a great detail here. But I want you to at least notice this. Abraham leaves Canaan because of a famine, and he goes down to Egypt. Does that remind you of any story that happens later at all? Where You remember a story where Abraham's descendants are in Canaan and there's a, a famine and so they go down to Egypt. Does that sound familiar to you at all? This is the Exodus story. This is what happens in the very next, later in the book of Genesis. Um, Jacob and his family are living in Canaan and there's the famine. They end up going down to Egypt and then God sends them a deliverer and they go up out of Egypt and God blesses them. You see, a lot of times what the Bible does is it tells this big story overall, but it tells it in small sub-stories along the way. And it wants us to see these hints and these echoes and these foreshadowing so that we may see it's all about what God does. Sometimes through our faithfulness, and we're going to read about that later on, not today, but in coming weeks, we'll read about some of Abraham's faithfulness and what God does through the, through the faithful moments. But a lot of times God's story is not just about what he does with our faithful moments, but it's what God does in spite of our faithless moments. Like we see here, God brings him out of Egypt and he brings him out as a blessing. There's a nod toward Jesus here. I'll close with this. There's a nod toward what Jesus would do, not only in the ways we've already talked about a little bit with the fall and, and all of that, but there's this nod toward Jesus in that, this story that's told again and again, Abraham goes up out of Egypt, which prefigures what Israel's going to do, the nation of Israel. They go down, they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God sends them Moses, and Moses leads them out of Egyptian captivity, right, and brings them to the promised land. There's this text in the Gospel of Matthew that talks about when Jesus was a baby boy to flee the wrath of Herod, they go down to Egypt. You remember that in the stories about Jesus when he's a baby? They take him down to Egypt. When that Herod dies, they come up out of Egypt and they come back to Canaan. Matthew, this isn't, this isn't Chuck, all right? I'm not the one making this analogy. Matthew does it. Matthew says, he quotes Hosea 11.1. 1, and Matthew says, oh, this is just like the Old Testament. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus, as a baby, was brought out of Egypt to the land of Canaan to become our deliverer. And in that story, Matthew sees parallels with God bringing Israel out of Egypt and to the land of Canaan, which is prefigured in Abraham going down to Egypt here in Genesis 12 and God bringing him out of Egypt with great blessings.
so that he might be a blessing to the nations. This is what God is doing today. Can you imagine, can you imagine how the church, how Israel at different points might have heard this story? Can you imagine Israel in Babylonian captivity? They're surrounded by enemies of God, a hopeless situation. Can God ever bring us out of captivity? Can, can God ever bring us out? Can you imagine how the church can read this story today, perhaps? We're surrounded by a pagan world, you know? Our world is becoming increasingly secular, increasingly godless, right? I mean, the world we live in is a messed up place. It seems like it's getting more messed up by the day. You ever feel like that? wonder what God's going to do through his church. We're, we're, you know, bombarded by all the enemies of God today. And yet the story of God is told here in Genesis 12, but it's told in bigger ways all over the place. And the story of God is God works through what the world would call insignificant people and insignificant communities of believers to do significant things. He does that in your life, and maybe, maybe right now you think, what in the world can God do with this? I wonder what he might do with this, whatever the this is, what he might do with this if you and I are just willing to turn it over to him and say, Lord, I can't fix this, but I know you can. I wonder. I wonder if the church, the church at Hoover, the church all over the world, meeting in small groups, meeting in houses, meeting in, in, in small villages, meeting out in the open air all over the world, even on this day, small communities surrounded by big communities of faithlessness, but small communities of believers, sometimes feeling bewildered and just surrounded by enemies of God. I wonder what God might do through us if we would take the lessons of stories like this one where God, God works in spite of the insignificance of us to bring about big things. That's what God is doing. That's what he's always done. That's what he's going to continue to do. The nod toward Jesus is that that is the ultimate moment where God says, I will respond to your faithlessness with my faithfulness and I will save you by my grace. If you're not a Christian today, man, the story we're talking about today, I know this may be a story you've never even, hardly even paid any attention to. It's one of those kind of obscure things. But I hope, maybe, maybe some of this, maybe some of this is a little tedious or, you know, we're talking about verbal similarities and all that. But I, I hope maybe, maybe a month from now you'll remember one thing. You'll remember one thing. And that is, you've been faithless. I know that because I have too. You've, you've, you've made a mess of your life. I know that because we're all in the same boat. But we serve a God. Stories are told over and over and over again in the Bible. We serve a God who takes our messes and makes something pretty out of them. That's what he did in Genesis 12, and that's what he's still doing today over and over and over and over again. If you're ready to come to faith in Jesus, bring him your mess. You've gone down to Egypt. You've made a mess of things. Bring him that. Bring him that. He'll bring you out of Egypt. He'll bring you back. He'll bless you.
and you can be a blessing to the people around you. If you are ready to trust in him, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you express that publicly in baptism, all your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, and God will walk beside you wherever you go, and he'll bless you, and he'll protect you, and he'll take care of you, and he'll help you through those dark times. God is a blessing, even when we aren't what we ought to be. If you're ready to come to faith in Jesus or come back to him, perhaps, we're here to help however we can. Let's stand and sing the song. I hope you'll come.